Well, today, today, and uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to go there. We're going to go where a few Menham Hills Church services have gone before. And it's not just because we put the word sex in the series title. Here's what I mean by that. See, guys, I, I believe that my calling is to change hearts and minds about God, about who Jesus is, why he came, about his relationship to, to you and to me and to us. My belief is that if I do an effective job communicating the Word of God, if I do it well, then that, coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said would remain here on earth and would convict of us of our sin and convince us of our need for Christ, well, then that would be the most powerful way to bring about personal and corporate transformation. You see, I don't really believe you can, over the long term, change people's hearts and minds and lives by just giving them a list of do's and don'ts or rights and wrongs. In fact, when our faith, when authentic Christianity gets reduced to a moral code or ethical standards, we've traded in the potential for a relationship with Jesus for religious rules and practices, which in the end have no power to save anybody anyway. Now, before you misunderstand what I'm saying, let me make it clear. As we come to know God through Christ and we walk with Him in relationship with a loving Father, we will change. Our hearts and our minds will inform our walk and our ethics and our morals. The Apostle Paul, he, he put it this way. He said, speaking of God, He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. Here he's speaking of the letter of the law, the old covenant, the thou shalt and thou shalt not but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, you can't live up to the law, but the Spirit gives life. And Paul concludes that the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. But over the last couple of years, I've, I've had something stirring inside my soul, something, something just kind of eating away at me. And it's all kind of culminated over the last couple of months to the point where I feel like I, I have to do maybe more direct teaching on a topic than I've done before. And that's why this title, the title of this series, could be more direct. Over the next few weeks, we're going to, through the light of the Scriptures, be looking at love, sex, marriage, and lies. Two things kind of push me over the edge, really, to, to make me deal as directly with this as I'm going to. The first, and, and get ready for an old man alert, middle-aged rant about to come your way. The first was when I was flipping through the channels a few weeks ago and I came across the Grammy Awards, where two super popular female rap stars were performing their four-week-long chart-topping hit. Why am I being so obscure in my opinion? It, it, why am I being so ob obscure? is that in my opinion, the song and the performance were so over the top, so toxic, the last thing I want to do is entice you to go in and listen to it or, or to see it again, although it's been viewed on YouTube 12 million times. See, our congregation, you guys, for the most, of you, most part, many of you are, are young and hip. I know that a lot of you know the song of which I speak, and you know I can't say it in church. And right now you're thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's going to go there. But having heard the song and then seeing the performance on CBS during primetime, I could not help but just kind of hit pause for a second and 
reflect on just where culturally we've come to when it comes to sex. Now, before you, you dismiss me as, as maybe some kind of prude or somebody who thinks he's holier than thou, let me give you the second reason I want to spend some time on, on these issues. And it's this, because I need to be reminded of God's views on love and sex, marriage, and truth. Because of all the cultural lies that are prevailing all around us and, and taking people out everywhere. These lies, they're hurting you, they're hurting me, they're hurting our sons, our daughters, our marriages. This series of talks is not going to be one of these, oh boy, aren't those people over there bad? Shame, shame. That's not what this is about. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it when he wrote to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a church that existed within a hypersexualized culture just like ours. He wrote to them, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? See, this is not about shaming or judging anyone who doesn't claim to share our beliefs. What people do with their own lives, the truth is, it's their own business. It's between them and God. But Paul goes on to say, though, are you not to judge those inside? And see, what he then does is he challenges those in the church about how the cultural lies in the community about love and sex and marriage have been impacting, hurting, and how actually people in the church were beginning to believe and live with those lies. And I need you to know, guys, I am not immune to this. I'm a human being, and the lies that exist out there about love and sex and marriage, they impact me too. And what I think about love and sex, and, and they impact my marriage, and they're impacting yours. See, I, I feel compelled to say something because of what our culture has done with love and sex and marriage. It, it's hurting you and, and me and those who, who claim to know God through Christ. I now have officially lost count of how many of our Christian leaders are getting destroyed by this issue every other week. Another famous Christian leader seems to be getting taken out one by one, and the thing that takes them out is always the same thing. It's like the title of the old 80s movie. It's the title just playing on repeat, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. And so look, before we get into what the scriptures teach regarding love, sex, marriage, and the truth, we're going to have to look at the lies that we're being fed over and over and over again that we're just taking in. See, here, here's the truth. Sex has always been a big deal. It's always been popular. Sexual immorality is nothing new. People being damaged and hurt by sexual impropriety. Those stories are as old as time, but, but here's something new in our culture, the one that we exist in right now. Today, what's different is, is the proliferation of highly sexualized images and the anonymous accessibility to them. That has never been like this. <laughs> I was a kid growing up in the late 70s and 80s. If you wanted to see a naked woman, you're going to have to make an effort. I remember, and this will show my age, I remember in grammar school when the, the new issue of National Geographic would come rolling into the school library, 
And I don't know, every once in a while, every year or so, there'd always be some story of a primitive culture somewhere in the world where all anybody was wearing was a loincloth. And so right there on the school library shelf for a few days, every boy in the school had access to pictures of topless women. National Geographic was never so popular. Now, these might not have been the most provocative images, but when you're 10 years old in the 70s, this was the only way you were going to see a woman naked. That was until one of your, frown, one of your friends would inevitably find his dad's stash of girly magazines. A lot of dads had them. All of their sons found them. And they found them that great personal risk to their own behinds. And listen, for decades, this is how sexually provocative images were transmitted. They, they were hard to get. To get them, they needed to take personal risk to either go and, and buy them or sneak in or go and see. See, today it's completely different. Today, every one of our kids has access in their pockets, on their phones, to the most horrific, the most objectified and violent kinds of pornographic images you can find. This is new. This has never happened before in the history of mankind. It's one giant societal sexual experiment with our kids, and the truth is with ourselves as the guinea pigs. And we're just now getting the data back on this, this proliferation of sexualized images, which have, has dominated the growing up years of our kids, of my kids, and, and we're just starting to get the reports now back of what it's doing to their mind. The average age of, of first-time viewership of, of hardcore pornography for boys is, is now down to age 11. Age 11. Before most boys are even hitting puberty, their minds are being shaped by hardcore pornographic images, informing them of what sex is. The anonymity, it drives proliferation more than you could possibly know. 25% of search engine requests are related to sex. 35% of all downloads on the internet are pornographic. 40 million Americans say they regularly visit porn sites. 70% of men age 18 to 24 visit a porn site at least once a month, but it's not just a guy thing. A third of all internet porn users are women, and surprisingly, Sunday is the most popular day of the week for viewing pornography. One more reason you should be in church, which is why we need to talk about this on Sunday. Because right now, the only thing educating, well, educating almost all of us, our kids, our teens, and us, the adults alike, about love and sex and marriage are the lies of our hypersexualized cultural our culture, which are available and come to us 24-7, 365, right through the palm of our hands. The New York Times, hardly a bastion of conservatism, published one of the, the darkest, most disturbing pieces I've ever read on this topic. I read it a couple of years ago, and it's just sat with me until I felt the time was right to bring it up. Parents, if you have the stomach to read it, you should. It was published in 2018. The title was what teenagers are learning from online pornography. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, you know, not my kid, which is an, an attitude they actually confronted in the piece. They called it parental na naivete, the, the gap. 
as it was evidenced in a University of Indiana study. Here's what they discovered. Half as many parents thought their 14 and 18-year-olds had seen porn as had, in fact, actually watched it. And depending on the sex act, parents underestimated what their kids saw by as much as 10 times. Parents, this is the truth. The internet is teaching your kids more about sex than anyone. And here's the problem. You see, they believe what they're seeing is actually what sex is and, and how it's actually performed and, and, and what it was meant to be. In, in a study carried out in 20, uh, 2016, teenagers reported that porn was their primary source for information about sex, more than friends, siblings, schools, or parents. There's nowhere else, quote, there's nowhere else to learn about sex, a suburban boy told, told the reporter. Quote, and porn stars know what they are doing. Do you see why I want to talk about this? They think... Incrementally, I think we think that what we're seeing, the kind of sex that is being viewed, that, that that's normal. There was this one line, being a father of daughters, that, that just stuck with me in the article. It was the saddest line in the story for me. It came from a young high school sophomore girl who said in regards to a, a particularly degrading sexual act that's all too common in pornography, she said that, quote, when older girls talk among themselves, many of them say it's gross, but they say you got to do what you got to do, and if you don't, another girl added, then someone else will. You see, the data on this grand social experiment's in. Again, secular sources, this is not stodgy Christian ministers stuff. The American Psychological Association has been sending out alarms over what this is doing to our young girls. It's dramatically affecting their body images. It's leading to greater depression and eating disorders. But it's not just the kids. It, it's, killing, it's killing our marriages. It's, it's killing marital intimacy. I heard this week in my research, according to the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, it's a, an association comprised of the top 1,600 divorce, divorce law attorneys, that, that this over-sexualized culture is now impacting marriages in ways unknown of only years ago. They reported that 56% of divorce cases involved one party having an obsessive interest in online pornography. The president of the association came out with this quote. He said, eight years ago, pornography played no role in divorce in this country. Eight years ago. The impact of this hypersexualized, porn everywhere culture. Eight years ago, it had no impact on marriages. Today, 56% of us are struggling at home because of what this illicit treatment of sexuality, the negative impact it's having on our intimacy, on our ability to communicate, bond, unite, be with one another. Now listen. I want you to know that as I enter into this discussion, I enter into it with a fair amount of fear and trembling for a bunch of reasons. The first is that my wife is going to have to sit here in the front row in front of all of you for the next several weeks and hear me talk about sex. 
And if you think that that topic might get a bit uncomfortable for you, imagine Joan Eisman. And if you think Joan Eisman is uncomfortable with me going over the topic for the next few weeks, may I introduce you to our four children, who will, depending on the week, be sitting right here next to her. In the four of their minds, we have only had sex four times, so they wonder what right I even have to speak on it. Actually, they aren't the real reasons that I have some fear. I have some fear, first off, because we live in such a cancel culture today. and What we're going to be looking at is so countercultural. What we're going to be talking about is going to be so personally challenging, and I think convicting, because I know it's convicting to me, that I just hope that, that you or others won't just tune me out and walk away and decide not to come back into the Christmas series. Thanks, John. Don't want to hear it, you old prude. Just call me back when we put Jesus back in the manger. The second reason, well, the second reason, it's that, look, anytime you talk about love and sex and marriage, you're delving into deep emotional areas, areas of pain and loss and betrayal. And so I want you to know, as we dive in, I'm going to do my absolute best to understand the hurt and, and the shame sometimes that, that exists when it comes to these matters. And, and that's exactly why. This, this is what actually leads us to the first cultural lie that underlies all of our discussions over the next few weeks. The lie that is so pervasive everywhere is this, that sex is just sex. That's it. Don't make more of it than it is. It's just physical. In fact, John, I know some of you might say it's been the church's puritanical views and teachings on sex over the years which are part of the problem. Well, you know what? You're right. I agree that the church's puritanical approach to sex has been part of the problem. In fact, the Oxford professor and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis wrote of this ethic that, quote, some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity, as if Christianity thought that sex or the body were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. He goes on, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on human form, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness. And so I concede that the church has somehow become known for over the years teaching that sex is bad or, or dirty or, or shouldn't be discussed or, or is only for procreation purposes. This is the farthest thing from the truth. And it has hurt us. And we're going to deal with that lie in the series as we go forward. But the one lie that I want to get at today is that somehow sex, well, it's just sex and nothing more. You know, you know how I know that that's a lie, that it isn't right, that's not true? I know because I've had to spend all this time so far prepping each one of you to receive this message. If I was going to talk about money or politics, gossip, stealing, idolatry, you name the moral issue, none of them carry the personal baggage that talking about sex does. 
The lie that undergirds our hypersexualized culture, the lie that our kids are learning, the lie that we're believing is that sex is no different than any other need, no different than food. You enjoy food, it's, it's just like food. So if you enjoy food, you go and eat. If you enjoy sex, you should have sex. It's just sex. And so go and get as much of it as you want. And, and, and if you have a craving, satisfy it. Don't be a prude. In fact, don't repress it. Don't repress that desire. Fulfill it. We hear that all the time, right? It's what, what's helped all of us to justify what we're doing. The problem is that all of us know that that's not true. Andy Stanley, in uh, addressing this same um, misnomer, he said, let me ask you a few questions, and I, I'll borrow from him. I thought they were good. He said, if sex is just sex, if it's, if it's just physical, then why is it when a child is sexually abused, when they're an adult, why is it that almost... It almost, it almost always rears its head in some painful way, that, that sexual abuse as a child. How, how come it always makes its way out? It becomes very difficult for, for, for the victims to overcome. I mean, if it's, if it's just sex, why can't they just say, oh yeah, when, you know, when I was a kid, some dirty old man touched me, but I, you know, I got over it, I shook it off. Well, you know the answer why. Because it's different. Something different about it. It's, it's not just physical. Why is it? Why is it that, that rape is so much more damaging to a woman than simply being mugged or, or knocked down on the street? Why, when, when that happens, will she almost always call the police and report the robbery or the brutality? But why is she so slow to report and often never will report the rape? instead carrying it around painfully for decades and somehow feeling burdened or shamed because of something not that she did, but that was done to her. I've had women, women come to me over the years to tell me what they had happened to them in college, crying. And when I ask them why, they experience guilt and, and shame and they can't even express to me why they feel it. It's just there. Here, here's why. Because sex is different. Why is it that almost everyone I know, everyone, if I were to give you all a truth serum and ask you this morning to tell me your deepest regret, why is it that almost every single person would give me a regret that has something to do with sex? I wish I hadn't. I wish I didn't. I mean, some of you know this, right? You've had friends come and tell you, uh, there's something I need to tell you. As a pastor, this happens a lot. Uh, there's something they need to share, something they screw up, something they need to get off their chest. Why is it it almost always has to do with, with something related to sex? Well, you know why? Because sex is not just sex. That's a lie. Sex is not just physical. It's not. It's more. Sex is different. It is like nothing else, so we have to pretending, stop pretending it's like everything else. See, here's, here's the truth that I'm going to, to be working through this morning to help you understand that. The truth is this, that when it comes to sex, like many other things, this is really about that. I'm going to show you what I mean. Let me give you an example. The person in my life that I've been closest to that, that I've lost this far in my life was my grandmother on my mom's side. 
She was to me a ridiculously special woman. By far the most wonderful, kind, giving person I've ever known. And everyone that knew her knew it. I remember growing up, she used to live close to a 7-Eleven store. I'd often go across the street and do some shopping for her. And whenever some of the folks in the store caught wind that I was shopping for Anna, they'd all drop what they were doing and come up to me and tell me how special my grandmother was and how lucky I was to be her grandson. My grandmother took care of everybody, but nobody more so than my, my aunt who had cerebral palsy her whole life, literally taking care of my aunt, every one of her needs, till the day she died. One day, my grandmother was walking home from cashing my grandfather's paycheck, and she was walking, holding my aunt up for the walk home. My grandmother never had enough money to, to buy a car, or let alone a house, and as she toddled down the road, somebody had been watching her, and they ran up and hit my grandmother and grabbed her purse and began to take off down the street with basically all the money they had. Well, the police were nearby and they took off after the assailant. But the story that got back was that as the police chased the guy down the street, guns drawn, my grandmother, instead of screaming, get that man, he just took everything I own, just kept shouting, whatever you do, don't shoot him. See, that was my grandmother. She, she loved me with a self-sacrificing, fierce love that I think few people ever get to experience. My grandmother passed away in 1994, almost 27 years ago now. When we were cleaning out our house, we were all taking different mementos of Graham and things to remember by. Uh, you might remember, I took her manger. I, I showed you guys that on, on Christmas. Well, the other thing I took, as trivial as it might seem, is this coffee mug from her house. See, my grandmother's life kind of revolved around coffee. Every time I, I went to her house, she would force me to sit with her and have a cup of coffee and ask me what was going on in my life. And so when she died, I, I took one of those coffee mugs. You see, this isn't just a coffee mug. This, well, it's really about that. This isn't just some ceramic pottery. Other than memories, this is all I have left of my grandmother. This is, this represents, it touches all of those emotions and feelings and memories of sitting around in our house, of, of hearing her voice, of smelling her kitchen, or feeling her touch. You see, this, it's about that. It's not just ceramic and paint. It, it's so much more than what you might think it is. This is why I still have it 30 years later. This is why I wash it when I can by hand. This is why I would never just, I don't know, if somebody came in right now and said, hey, John, can I borrow a coffee mug? I wouldn't just go, yeah, there, here you go. You see, I would never do that with that mug. That's not really the mug the mug's home. But here's my point. This is about that. It's not just a mug, it's more. But you see, that's what the culture wants you to believe. That's what the culture is teaching us and our kids, that sex is just physical. It's just sex. I would never do that with my grandmother's mug, but culture wants us to do that with our bodies and our sexuality. Just toss it around, pass it around. It's just, it's just ceramic and paint. Just your body, it's just your body. It's just sex. 
Here's what you know. The truth is, just like that mug could not be replaced because it's more than mere ceramic, either can you and, and your sexuality, because your sexuality, it's more. It's, it's about something else. Sex is about something else. It, it has value. And because, because like that mug, it, it's, mo- it's worth something more. Don't buy the lie that it's not. We have to teach our kids that this is, is about something else. So if it's about something more, then, then what is it? In, in this city of Corinth, they, they had bought into the lie. Not just the people in, in town, but the people in the church. They believed, too, that sex was no different than food. It was just a need, a desire. It was just sex. If you want to eat, you eat. If you want to have sex, you have sex. So Paul writes into their culture and then into that church. And I think he'd be writing to our culture and our church, too. He goes, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He tells them, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, what they would say is, well, it's just my body. It's just food. They're both just things. They're both going to rot in the ground one day. They're just going to decay. They're essentially worthless. But Paul goes on, no, 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 no he says. It's more. The body, he says. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, this sex, it has something to do with our bodies, and as we're going to see in the coming weeks, it has something to do with the Lord. Then he gives some strange advice. If you know anything about some of Paul's teachings on sin, this advice is super interesting. Maybe you've grown up in the church and, and, and you played in, in Sunday school and, and maybe you were up there and they, they, the little boys used to put on Caleb, my son Caleb, we used to have this outfit for him. It was so goofy, but uh, it was the full armor of God and Caleb used to dress in the full armor of God. And that comes from Paul, what he had wrote to the church in Ephesus. He said, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. And why? So that you can... Take your stand against the devil's schemes. He goes on. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. Stand. 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 Which makes what he tells the Corinthians so interesting. Flee from sexual immorality. You see, don't stand. Not now, not here. Not against this. Run. And you know why? Because sex is different. Sex is not like other sin issues. It's like you can put all of these other things in one bucket. But this this gets its own bucket. Now listen to me. This is super important to understand. It's not because God hates this sin more than any other sin. It's not that it's more evil than any of their sin. It's, it's, it's not because it's a sin that God can't forgive. It's not because it, it, it's a sin that Jesus didn't die to pay for. It's not because God can't restore or redeem you from it. That's not it. You might have been told that. You might feel it sometimes. But that's not it. Here's why Paul says it's different. 
Paul says that all other sins, they're over here in this bucket, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The reason it's different is that sex is not just sex. Sex is different. Paul knew it 2,000 years ago. Just like you and I know it today, sex does not just hurt the outside. Sex does something to our inside. It does something at the heart level, the soul level, the spiritual level, the deepest places in us, and it has power there like no other sin. What Paul calls sexual immorality, sexual sin, and we'll define that more clearly in the coming weeks, but I'm not going to break any new ground here when I tell you that Christian sexual moral is that any sex outside of the covenant of marriage is sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is not just like any other sin because this one does something on the inside to our soul. How so? Well, let's get back to it because this sex is is really about that. My mug was about my grandma. So what is sex actually about? Well, Paul goes on, he tries to explain it, specifically to those in Corinth that had been, you know, feeding their appetite. They were sleeping with prostitutes, and they would justify it by, by just saying, well, it's just sex. And so he says to them, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. I want you to see two very powerful words here. This is why sex is different. This is why this is actually about that. Two words, unites and then one. Unites and one, or one flesh. See, Paul, he hearkens us back to the dawn of creation, the Garden of Eden, where God has given to Eve Adam and Adam to Eve, and he says to them to be fruitful and multiply, to be one united flesh. Did you know the first commandment ever given to man was to have sex? God is no prude. God loves sex. He invented it. It was his idea. But God also knows its power, and its power is is this, that sex is not just sex. This is about what it is about. Sex is about uniting souls. Sex is about becoming one. It's a melding of two people, two identities, two lives into one. Sex is about unimaginable intimacy. Sex is about being fiercely known and unafraid and accepted. It's about being naked and unafraid. And what fuels that unity and union and oneness is sex. This is actually about that. See, when, when, when we use it, and, and we're doing this like never before, when we use sex for, for unintended purposes, and, and come on, some of you know this, as a culture, we're feeling the burden of this. When you use sex for unintended purposes, then you deal with the unattended consequences. 
the ones we went over earlier, the ones that are being visited upon our little girls and our prepubescent boys and our marriages and our homes. It's because we believe the lie that sex is just sex, but it's not because this is about that. Sex is about intimacy and oneness and knownness. And what you're going to see in the coming weeks is it's also about God and us and spiritual intimacy. And sex outside of the God-given purpose, it destroys something in us. It destroys our ability for this, for intimacy and oneness and knownness. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at love, and we're going to look at marriage, and, and sex, and lies, and the truth. We're going to discover together more of why this is really about that. How does love, sex, and marriage have anything to do with God? Well, here's a teaser for you. It has more to do with God than you could ever imagine. We're going to use as our text a book in your Bible called The Song of Songs, or, or sometimes The Song of Solomon. It is by far the most intimate, personal, poetic look at these topics ever written. It is so direct in dealing with these issues that in antiquity, it wasn't allowed to be read until a man turned 30 years old or, or was married. In it, it holds all of the keys, all of the truth about love and sex and marriage, all the ones that God, your loving Father, wants you to know. Friends, we're about to go on a journey towards truth, but we're going to travel across a sea of lies, ones that literally we're drowning in. These weeks will be challenging, at points potentially confrontational and, and likely uncomfortable. But here's one thing I, I, I promise you. It will not be hurtful. For, for remember, while it's Paul that tells the Corinthian church in regards to these things, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. He also tells them that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For every one of us, and it is every one of us, who have struggled in this area, who have, have, have made mistakes, who, who have regrets, who maybe feel some shame this morning, even as we wade in, Paul wants you to remember, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is not about shame or blame. This is about healing and growth and transformation and forgiveness and holiness this week, my friends, I want you to work on beginning to no longer believe this lie. Because here's the deal, this is really about that. Sex is not just sex. Sex is about intimacy and oneness and wholeness and knownness. It's about God and his church and husbands and wives and singles and families. It is a gift not to be misused, but to be enjoyed. We'll get it right, and we'll do it together. Next week, Song of Solomon, Chapter 1. See you back here as we shake off the lies.